You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, some historical nonsense. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Lauren Bailey, and with me tonight, I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. Hello. History is full of weird and wonderful scams. Sure is. Yep. <laughs> and tonight, today, tonight, whatever time of day you're listening to this, we're going to go go through a couple of them. <laughs> I don't know. We record at night. <laughs> we always say good night. We always we say good night. It is night. We just, this is, yes. it is always night. On the rare occasions that we've recorded on like an early afternoon, I still think good night yeah. at the end. So. We still say good night because we don't know what else to say. Even though it's G-rated, we're always L-U-E-E after dark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what show have you been on? <laughs> That's true. PG-13. Yeah. We can get a couple of F-bombs and a... A boob. Maybe a boob or two. <laughs> this is a podcast. A visual boob. Everybody imagine one boob right now. God. All right. What are we talking about today, Lauren? <laughs> well, you're, you have the first segment. So why don't you tell us the tale of a fake coin and a fake emperor? Around the year 260 AD, things were rough for the Roman Empire. The crisis of the 3rd century, wherein the Roman Empire nearly collapsed, was in full swing. There were civil wars, invasions, migration, political instability, and usurpers competing for power. A plague, the Plague of Cyprian, that might have been a filivirus like Ebola, reduced the population of the city of Alexandria from 500,000 to 160,000. Holy crap. It was a bad time for the Roman Empire. wild. At one point, Rome experienced six emperors in a single year, but the average for the 100-year period was about one every two years. (laughs) So you said six emperors in a year? Yes. Woof! (laughs) I have several books about this time period. The furthest flung part of the empire at the time was called, and maybe you can tell me how to pronounce this, Lauren, Dacia or Dacia, Dacia, which now is roughly present-day Romania. During the height of the crisis, this province was cut off from Rome until order was restored and Rome evacuated its citizens a few years later, abandoning the province altogether. In 1713, a small hoard of coins was discovered in Transylvania, and sold off to various collectors. Sorry, because they're in Transylvania, I'm imagining horde, H-O-R-D-E, and they're all like, they're all undead. A little horde of walking undead coins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Adorable. Blah. H-O-A-R-D. Okay. Gotcha. Small horde of coins was discovered in Transylvania, once part of Dacia, and sold off to various collectors. Most of the coins bore the images of well-known Roman emperors, but there were a few with a new face, one Sponsianus. It was not unusual for even short-lived emperors to mint their own coins, 
and the possibility of a short-term emperor crowning himself in a Roman province cut off from communication with the rest of the empire for personal gain, military stability, some combination of the two, totally plausible. Military instability was also an option. (laughs) Sure, sure. But, like, the theory that I read was that if they were cut off from the rest of the empire and there was a lot of, like, well, what the fuck do we do now? Having a new emperor who was probably going to be a military commander, because that's who they tended to be, Mm -hmm. would have brought some, like, okay, we got, we have some hierarchy restored or whatever. That was the thinking, anyway. Mm -hmm. People certainly can't govern themselves. (laughs) No. This was all totally plausible. However, the coins were quite unusual in a number of ways, which led to 19th century coin experts to conclude that they were forgeries. Not only forgeries, but dismissed as modern fakes, poorly made and ridiculously imagined. (laughs) I love that. Just because they were made out of cardboard doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Cutting commentary. Wait, did they have chocolate inside? (laughs) No chocolate, no. Not, although we will get to the composition later. Given that these coins were all the proof that we had of Sponsius's existence, historians consigned him to the trash pile of fake history. Until, that is, a 2022 study published in PLOS One came out detailing a new analysis of one of the coins. The author, Professor Pearson, said he noticed in a photograph of the coin scratches that looked like they resulted from normal circulation. Under close examination, Professor Pearson says that the scratches are consistent with those seen on coins that have been in purses, passed around from hand to hand. He also revealed results of chemical analysis that suggested mineral deposits indicative of the coins having been buried for a long time. So all of this is evidence pointing towards these coins having circulated in ancient Rome and having been buried and then found, which would make them real. The BBC and other news outlets put out articles hailing the discovery of a previously unknown Roman emperor. He is quoted, as Professor Pearson is saying, For the history of Transylvania and Romania in particular, but also for the history of Europe in general, if these results are accepted by the scientific community, they will mean the addition of another important historical figure in our history. I notice that if. Yeah. <laughs> I decided that this if was an important quote to put in there. <laughs> because unfortunately, the results of this study have been called into question. <laughs> there are just like a couple of dozen eensy weensy problems with their analysis. Just, just a couple <laughs> dozen? Oh, tell us, Ashley. We just have some questions. Just We just have a couple of problems. There have been a few professional numismatic experts who have looked at these suggestions in this study that was put out saying that these are real coins. And one of them, this I found this sentence very funny. Let's review the 11 most important arguments. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. These go to 11. Number one. The coins were cast instead of being struck, which was overwhelmingly Hmm. the most popular way to make coins back in the day. There would be two pieces of metal, and they would put a thin piece of blank metal in between and pound on it with a hammer, and it would make an impression on both sides at once. (laughs) It's very satisfying. Yeah, it's fun to do. But these ones were poured into a mold. This made them quite a bit heavier than other coins. And even sort of imitations of the time would have been struck, not cast, almost all of the time. There are some examples of cast coins, but they're so rare. The weights of the pieces didn't correspond to the Roman weight system. Oh. Oh, okay, well, there you go. They were kind of, like, 
all over the place mm. and not even, and it that was a little weird. The but Romans that, liked their structure. Sorry, yeah, Lauren. but if it's a if it's a cut off emperor in a part of the world where eh, close enough for a silver coin, that. <laughs> but, but did he? Would he? Make his own weight system because, like, it's not—it's not just that. Like, because this isn't exactly fiat currency at this time, right? right? Like, the the value is due to the weight of the metal. Mm-hmm. Is my understanding? Yeah, typically. So it would be weird to have these essentially be random denominations. Yeah. Even with the amount of wear or shaving or whatever, you wouldn't expect them to be kind of all over the board. Yeah. Fun yeah. time where you would shave coins in order to yeah, like. There were a number of sort of grammar and s- mistakes. The where a layperson looking at a coin would be like, "Sure, it looks like a Roman coin," but someone who is familiar with the customs and typical ways that these are done would say, "Like these are this is very weird." Latin is hard. Latin is hard. <laughs> One of the most important things is there is a genitive form of the name, which basically makes the thing say, this coin is the emperor of emperors, Bonciani or whatever. But it might just be because the coin mold, like slipped while it was, and the N at the end became an extra I. There's a couple of other divots on there that make it look like maybe the whole thing sort of twisted when the mold was being made, and so the mold was fucked up initially. This brings us to another interesting point. All of the coins with this guy's face on it seem that we have seem to have been made from the exact same sort of mold or dye. Oh. So they were all done at once. They were all from the same batch. Okay. Which is pretty unusual if they've been in circulation for a while. Yeah. You know, but, but maybe this guy was only in power for a couple of weeks. It happens. <laughs> and if they were cast coins, it would be in a set of, of molds as, a, as opposed yeah, to a You're not doing them one at right. a time. Right, you're not going to make one at a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be disgustingly slow, especially <laughs> if you were a brand new emperor wanting to... And some of the excuses that the researchers put out are like, oh, well... He wanted to put out coins immediately, and they were heavier because he needed to pay the army, and it was an emergency, yada, yada, yada. And he had to do each uh, one separately but by himself. But if you're doing him one at a time, it's yeah. not a rush. <laughs> <laughs> it seems likely, based on what these experts think, that all of the coins found in this hoard were engraved by the same engraver, based on the shapes of the letters. So... One excuse offered for this very weird situation <laughs> is that were they collected because they were they all had these strange features? It's we're really stretching. Mm. We're, we're we're they're trying. Yeah, Oof, we're, they're we're trying. stretching. At this the point. coin maker's mother did not have a collection that we just found. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine, like, a comic book collector who's just after everything lettered by this one guy. Right. <laughs> They compared these coins to other coins that were known to have been in circulation. However, the methodology that they chose is very strange. They took a handful of coins that were known to have been in circulation in, I think, France for like a hundred years and compared them to these coins and said, ah, these are very similar. That must mean they were in circulation for some time. 
these coins, based on their own guesses about the dates, etc., would have been in circulation for like max 15 years. So that's already weird. They didn't compare them to any other coins that had perhaps been in circulation a more similar amount of time, etc. Okay, so they just took coins. They're like, oh, I have these ones that I can look at. Let's look at them. Sort of the same, not even really. Yeah. And it was noted that it was even in the 18th century that forgers knew that if you put the forgeries in a bag with some other coins and you like messed about with them for a while (laughs) to make them look like they had been used for a while. Yeah. So this wasn't, they knew how to make reasonably aged forgeries even in the (coughs) 1700s. Sure. That's, it's not that shocking that they would have scratches indicative of where. People have been people. For forever. What? Exactly. No. Yeah. And then they found they found that Roman paper money, but had like, they'd done the tea thing, so it kind of looked old. Here's a piece of evidence that like for a second had me thinking maybe these things are real. There are almost no mentions of the name Sponsianus in the historical record. And at the time that they, that these would have been forged, there was like maybe one published mention of this name. So... Somebody actually, like, either got real lucky and guessing at a name, or had seen it in a source that is no longer around, which is possible. But for a second, I was like, wow, they wouldn't have just made up a legit name that was just really rare. That's... Mm-hmm. So, so that lends a tiny bit of credence, but it probably doesn't tilt the, the scales. They were found originally with a couple of other probable forgeries, but they were at least plausible. They had known emperors. They had reasonable obverses, which some of the the ones with the fake emperor had obverses that were modeled after coins that were like 200 years apart and before a lot of very big political things happened, which means that they were just totally incompatible with the type of coin that would have been made at the time this emperor was supposed to have been around. Right. It just is very weird that this would have that back, apparently. I don't know. Right, about okay. Coins. Okay. <laughs> I've learned a lot about coins in the last couple of hours, but so there's a group of coins that were supposed to be from three different sort of emperors, clearly made by the same engraver, ended up in a single hoard. Very suspicious. Were all of these emperors is it plausible that they all live, like, were they consecutive? Did they all live at the same time? It like, is plausible they that... they have used the same engraver? I didn't look up that close, but okay. it was reasonable that these other emperors would have been in the same horde as this-ish guy. Okay. Yeah. The year of the six emperors. So, right. I mean, and yeah, this was, like, a lot of emperors in the same amount of time, so... Sure. I'm gonna say reasonable. And this is, and these were supposed to have been made in Rome, or were these made in Dacia? They would have been made in Dacia because that's where they were. Okay, so even more kind of removed and stuff. Yeah, and so maybe they had to use local metalsmiths. Sure, right? Maybe there's only one. There's There's only one coin engraver. Jeff is the only guy who knows how to make coins. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But we have never found a coin that was not associated with this hoard even though these were found in like 1700s and something like 95% of third century coins have been found since metal detecting became a thing. And we have not found any more with this guy's head on it. Ah. (laughs) So it seems likely that if they were around and they were circulating widely, that they would have 
found at least one more. However, I would like to mention this other guy, Domitian II. He probably ruled Northern Gaul for a few weeks around 271. (laughs) (laughs) And in 1900, a single coin bearing his name was found in a field in France. And so as with the first Sponsian coin, everybody was like, yeah, probably a fake. And then in 2003, one more turned up. And three years later, a third one showed up. And this one was in a pot of coins that like, for sure, all of these coins were minted in the third century. Like there was Mm. no questioning that. So this guy existed because we have three different coins from three different places that, you know, were definitely not all found together and were definitely minted in the third century. But there's only three coins of him, but he probably existed. Huh. Probably died before they finished casting the rest and they just recast them. Right, yeah. <laughs> or or, or stamping them. them. Yeah. them. Yeah. So the fake emperor is probably still fake. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a lot more drama than I expected in this story. That's really cool. Very cool. It was very fun. Yeah, yeah. That's super fun that it went deeper and now you know more about coins. And interesting to think about, like, uh, 18th century forgers making ancient Roman coins to make a few bucks. Mm-hmm. It looked, they look reasonably similar enough. Some rich guy bought a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Harder to prove back then. Yeah. Got to admire the grift. Yeah. I had a good time. I hope <laughs> you enjoyed hearing about Sponsius. <laughs> Rip Sponsius. <laughs> I'm trying to make a sponsor joke. No. My Latin, my Latin joke won't work. Just a second, I need to cough. That was a great segment. Yeah. Short and sweet. Very cute. Yeah. Now I'm going to take us for a tiptoe through the tulips to Calvinism. With me. <laughs> <laughs> Like Emperor Sponsius, tulip mania didn't exist. At least, it didn't exist in the way that we've been led to believe. No. Yeah, it was really cool. But I I read Extraordinary Popular Delusions of the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay. Yes. (laughs) Is that a waste of my time? Yes, he's mentioned in my segment. Damn it! (laughs) That's that's the book that I used to read at at weddings. When I went to weddings with Lauren, I was really bored. You're so awful, (laughs) Chad. You're so (laughs) awful. So antisocial. <laughs> Truly mortifying. So the prices for broken tulip bulbs did skyrocket in the 1630s. And by broken, I mean that the bulbs had a specific strain of a virus that made the petals have a white line through them. Mm. So they called them broken bulbs, broken mm. tulips. Oh, okay. So they were pretty. I yeah. didn't, I, I don't know anything about this, so enlighten me. Okay. Well, as far as historians can tell... The tulip mania in the 1630s didn't crash the entire economy of the Netherlands when the bubble burst after three years. The common conception is, oh God, Holland has fallen. That was not meant to rhyme. I just, there's so many names to choose from. The Netherlands, Holland. No more rhymes now, I mean it. But it was a con. And what people have remembered, it came from Calvinism. I did a deep dive into Calvinism today and I don't recommend (laughs) <laughs> John Calvin was the little serpents in the cradle, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did not like kids, that guy. 
as usual, I'm getting ahead of myself, and Jem's even getting ahead of me, <laughs> and that's fine. So let's look a little bit at tulip mania, and then a little bit at Calvinism, and they both kind of grew together in the late 1600s. Excuse me. They both kind of grew together in the early 1600s in the Netherlands. John Calvin was the 1500s, but his ethos kept growing. The long-held popular opinion on tulip mania crisis originated with the 1841 publication, as Jem mentioned, of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Scottish journalist Charles Mackay. In this book, he spoke of how tulip bulbs were more expensive than mansions and how a sailor was convicted and sent to prison for mistakenly eating a bulb. Apparently, he ate one bulb and he thought it was an onion. <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, do yeah. you think it was an onion? Like, why would you do that? Yeah. What year was this? The Tulip Mania stuff? Yeah. 1636-ish. Oh, okay. I recently learned that tulip bulb soup is like a famine food in yeah. the Netherlands. Oh. However, it's not really. <laughs> because tulips are mildly poisonous, and the taste of tulip bulbs is disgusting. Well, I've heard it's really gross, but I'm, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I mean, my friend was telling me about her grandma used to eat yeah. it in the war. I, I read some things about how it, it wasn't a thing, but if you've got okay. personal... Yeah, I mean, Grandma might have eaten it. <laughs> I mean, it was not are, good. There are always those things that weren't, like, a thing, but people still people did them. Thought, or yeah. People thought that they were a thing, and it gets passed down. I don't know. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if people actually bo- tried to boil boots for soup. No. No. I'm pretty That's sure, that, sure that, didn't, like... that didn't happen. Yeah. And... Like how we're debating these stories, none of the stories that McKay used about the tulip mania could be verified. His research relied heavily on other books that themselves relied on pamphlets that had been used to mock his speculators. That were written by the so these pamphlets were written by the Calvinists. Mm. <laughs> okay, Wait, they were used to mock speculators. So the people speculating in the tulip mania. Oh. The Calvinists wrote pamphlets mocking them. Okay. So speculating meaning like I buying and selling. Yeah. 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 And so that's what he was basing his research on. It was another book, which title I completely forgot to write down, which was based on these pamphlets. But that was what they had at the time, because his book was written in the 1800s. Right. So it's third-hand information from people who were making fun of the people doing Mm -hmm. this. So impossible that there could have been some exaggeration. Yeah. Early scholarship, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the idea that persisted, that the Netherlands was basically done in by the tulip and the first ever speculative bubble. As I was saying, modern scholarship belies this. The tulip mania was actually restricted to a fairly small group, and most accounts from that period are based on one or two contemporary pieces of propaganda and a prodigious amount of plagiarism, according to the 2007 scholarly analysis Tulip Mania by Anne Goldgar. Peter Garber argues that the trade in common bulbs was no more than a meaningless winter drinking game played by a plague-ridden population that had made use of the vibrant tulip market. So it was mostly futures markets. No money was actually changing hands except at the very high levels. People were sitting in the pubs, dying of the plague, saying, yeah, I'll buy a hundred tulips. <laughs> and nobody ever paid any money for it. While McKay's account held that a wide array of society was involved in the tulip trade, Goldger's study of archived contracts found that even at its peak, the trade in tulips was conducted almost exclusively by merchants and skilled craftsmen who were very wealthy, but not members of the nobility. So it was like very concentrated on like the sign nobility, the snobs. Any economic fallout from the bubble was very limited. 
found that fewer than half a dozen who experienced financial troubles in the time period, and even of these cases, it wasn't clear that tulips were entirely to blame. They were just really bad at business. (laughs) I was going to say, it's like, yeah, "Yeah, the tulip market crashed, and I had a gambling problem. (laughs) Yeah. I drank a lot. Yeah. Although the prices had risen, money had not changed hands between buyers and sellers. Like I said, it was a futures market. Thus, profits were never realized for sellers, unless the sellers had made other purchases on credit in expectation of these profits that weren't really happening. The collapse in prices did not cause anyone to lose a major amount of money. Hmm. So, basically, like today's stock market, it was all pretend. (laughs) (laughs) The social fallout came from the Calvinistic Reformed Church that was the main Christian religion in the Netherlands at the time. Pamphlets and sermons decried tulips as sinful and too too worldly and accused people of not focusing on their admission to heaven. And instead, you know, focusing on tulips and beautiful things. Yep. Sounds like Calvinism. That's just bleak. The term pride pride comes before a fall or pride goes before a fall, that is pure Calvinism in its distillation. The five points of Reformed theology are spelled out with the acronym TULIP. Yeah. There is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Yeah, it's, it's a long stretch to get to Tulip, but I didn't come up with it. We're going to go through them all, though. <laughs> Total depravity meant, in Calvinism, that as a consequence of the original sin, back in the Garden of Eden, every person is a sinner, and it's not in our nature to love God in salvation, but to love sin. So you got to beat the God into somebody. Unconditional election, here's where it starts to get really screwed up. God has chosen... In his predestination, because Calvinism is all based on predestination, those who he will save. Oh, right. This is one of those groups. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about Calvinist, but I go on. (laughs) If if you're not among the saved, and I'm sure the four of us are not, you won't know it until you die that you're among the damned. So, sorry. Yeah, that's something that Calvinists and I agree upon. Mm -hmm. the, the, The whole lack of free will. Yes, I thought of this... I thought of your lack of free will mightily as I was writing this segment. I mean, fr- free will would contravene God's ultimate power. Yep. Okay. Let, let them go on, please. Back to tulips. Limited atonement, like unconditional election. Sort of the same thing. The sacrifice of Jesus was only for those elected by God in the weird Calvinist lottery. <laughs> and, and just to make sure, nobody knows mm-hmm. on earth, right? So you just have to hope that you are one of them. And then one day you'll wake up in hell and be like, well, shit. <laughs> Is this well, their interpretation of the 107,000 or whatever? Yeah, it's okay. very similar to that. Yeah. It's the, the underlying feeling in Calvinism is those who are among the atoned are the ones drawn to Calvinism. Mm. Big surprise. Irresistible grace. Those who are meant to be saved will be called to be saved. So they will, they will follow John Calvin. And then perseverance of the saints. A saint in this context is, surprisingly, a Calvinist. Only those who keep to the tenets of Calvinism are the true Calvinists and meant to be a saint. Everyone else was falsely called. So if you can't obey perfectly, then I'm sorry. You're not among the saved. You're not among the the unconditional elected. So that's how you spell tulip. That's some heavy, though not... Why do they hate flowers? Like, what did the tulips ever do to them? 
Flowers bring joy, Laura. Joy in this material world and not in heaven. A tulip, a flower, is a distraction from your heavenly atonement. But, but, but don't they believe that God made the damn flowers? Like, why would he do that? To tempt you away from Calvinism. Why do you like this guy? Just like I when don't. he made the dinosaurs to try and trick you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh my god. I just, I just don't understand sometimes, like, when you lay it out and you're like, and people followed this dude, eh? People Without still follow this dude. Backs. People like, still okay. follow this dude. I, I'm aware. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I am aware. I mean I I I imagine it's changed a bit since then. Like a lot of religions have mellowed a little. Or not. But you know, I'm just gonna say it. Hugely I, influential over the yeah. in the early religious history of the Americas. I grew up in an area that was Dutch Reform. Okay. And this is what the people who did not go to the public school who lived around me, believed. Ah, so when you when you tried to play together. I was friends with them. We didn't discuss... Yeah, we were ten. Yeah. We were playing on piles of bleached cow bones behind the barn. We weren't talking about Calvinistic dogma. <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking, as a kid, there were some kids that we would play with, and they had the super religious NES games. And I'm just trying to imagine what a Calvinist Nintendo game would be like. Come on, kids. Let's go hit the piñata. <laughs> The piñata is dead and you killed him. It would definitely play itself, right? No inputs. No inputs? <laughs> it, would be, it would be a blank screen, and then at the end it would tell you whether you were saved or not. Yeah. <laughs> so Maybe it would be like desert bus where you just kind of drive along the same road for a long time. I've never heard of this game. Oh, yeah. Desert bus is like famously one of the worst games. You, you're, <laughs> no, really? <laughs> Unlike Desert Golfing, which I would argue is a perfect game. Nope. <laughs> desert bus, basically you're driving from one place to another through a desert along a road. And I believe, if I recall correctly, the bus lists slightly to the left as you're driving it. So you have to keep pulling it to the yeah, right? Yeah, and so people will play this game exclusively like to torture themselves for charity. Yeah, it's like a fundraiser thing. I will play Desert Bus for oh, 40 okay. hours if you give money to this charity. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm just... I Why? Why does this exist? During the Depression in the 1930s, people had dance-a-thons where they would dance as long as they could. And there was a movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? About this. These dance-a-thons. Where people would, were just 48 hours of dancing and were so tired. And the, the, the tagline was that they, they shoot horses for this kind of torture. I, so, I, I assume it's similar. I was under the impression that they often did that because there was food and mm-hmm. or money involved. And so it, it was a desperation yep. kind of thing. It wasn't a... I will willingly submit myself to torture. Also, the person who made this game is sadistic. Mm-hmm. Like, just, that's, oh. Anyway, He's John Calvin. Tell us about, tell us more about Calvinism. Well, part of the regulative principles of Calvinistic worship is what we were talking about earlier with the tulips. God institutes in the scriptures what you have to do to worship, and everything else, tulips, desert bus, fancy clothes, pride, is prohibited. Anything that brings you joy is an affront to God. In the grand scheme of things, the Calvinists and their propaganda won the tulip wars. The fall of the speculative market was blamed on the pride of the speculators, and not the most likely outbreak of the bubonic plague that was happening at the same time. 
So nobody was able to go to the markets? So that's why they sort of bottomed out? No, totally unrelated. However, thanks to McKay and his madness of crowds, and the fact that he sourced from the Calvinistic pamphlets, that version of the story held up until the 1980s. That's 300 years of believing we were sinful brats who couldn't control ourselves around some pretty flowers. <laughs> Whew. Are we not, though? Yeah, I don't know. That story checks out. <laughs> Enjoy the flowers. You are probably not among the predestined. <laughs> Just enjoy your goddamn life. And this is coming from me. <laughs> I'm just Calvinistic by proxy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Those kids rubbed off on you when you were playing on the cow bones. <laughs> yeah. Laura, has the earth been swallowed by a black hole? And how would we know? That's a really good question, Lauren. I thought so. What if I told you that the past 10 years have been a total lie? Thank goodness. Please. <laughs> like, what if all the difficulties, the tragedies, all of these things that we've lived through since 2012 just weren't really real? Have we actually been working on climate change this whole time? Laura, this is a really awkward way to break up with me. <laughs> Ashlyn and I have been together, living together for 11 years now, so we're good. <laughs> well... For some people, they, they seem to think that this may have, in fact, been the case. So they, the belief here is that while we experience the day-to-day, it's not the day-to-day that we once knew, pre-July 4th, 2012. In fact, it's more of a hologram or an illusion. Neat. Does anybody know what happened on July 4th, 2012, aside from it being American Independence Day? The goddamn particle was activated in the Hadron Collider? Damn it, your memory is whoppingly absurd. Well, the context did help. (laughs) (laughs) But still, there is no way in, in any universe I would have ever remembered something like that. I was reading an article about the Hadron Collider the other day. (laughs) Of course you were. Of course you were, Lauren. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Lauren, and your amazing memory for that. But yes, for people like me who didn't remember, that was the day that CERN, whose name is an acronym that I can't remember, you can look it up, C-E-R-N, announced to the world that they had identified the Higgs boson particle through their experiments with the Large Hadron Collider. And this was huge, huge news in the physics and science world and and really opened up our understanding of of the universe and so on and so forth. However, what some people believe that they weren't as open about is that maybe, just maybe, this discovery actually opened a giant black hole which swallowed the Earth. And the scientists at CERN went, oh shit, and they made a hologram universe for us to move into so that nobody would know that they swallowed the world. What? How did they retroactively do that before the bad thing happened? Don't what? follow the woman in the red dress. <laughs> so I don't have an answer for that, Ashlyn. But for the... That for... seems like a very important question. <clears throat> they were you would think. They One would prepared think. it ahead of time, just in case. Ah, see, there you go, right? So one of the largest proponents of this 
I'll put it air quotes hypothesis, is a fellow named Nick Hinton, who has apparently, apparently, degrees in psychology, engineering, and parapsychology. Of course, I was waiting for the parapsychology. There it is. Yeah. Yep. So in a very long Twitter thread in 2019, he expounds at length that this is probably what happened. Probably. This is probably what happened. Because... I like that he's hedging. <laughs> well, this is probably what happened. Because you know how nothing has seemed quite right since 2012, and there's been a lot of bad stuff that's happened, and time seems to go faster. And, like, how do some people remember this happening, and other people remember it happening that way? Like, how some people remember the word Skechers is in the shoes with spelt with a T, and some remember it not spelt with a T. And some people remember Febreze spelled with two E's in the middle and not just one the way it's spelled. And also people think that the Statue of Liberty is on Ellis Island, but it's not. It's on Liberty Island. But then there are these pictures on the Internet that show like a monument of Ellis Island that's empty. But how could that be? This is all black hole shit. <laughs> Listeners, Laura has pulled out a whiteboard and there's like string between different pictures and everything. She's okay, been oh, at this a while. Okay, but... but- <laughs> Where does Stan and Jan Berenstain come into this? Also, in here. They're in jail with Nelson Mandela. <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously, the way that he knows this is all connected to July 4th on 2012, or whatever it was, is because there was a user on 4chan <laughs> who calls themselves a CERN whistleblower that stated this was the case, and CERN knew they fucked everything up, and so they created this alternate universe to shift us all over to mask this effect. But unfortunately, because it was not a perfect replica, that's why we're all having the Mandela effect, which is when large groups of people remember things incorrectly. It is the entire Luke, I am your father. No! False memory that many of us carry. And despite the fact that we've been reminded numerous times that it is different, it is part of the ethos and... We have a hard time letting it go. That was from Star Wars. I know. It's no, I am your father. It's always been no, I am your father. Look into yourself. You'll know it to be true. <laughs> I am not disputing <laughs> these things. I am simply saying the scientists at CERN invoked this Mandela effect in order to do this. In any case. So what do we think? What is it? The simple answer is we don't know. Does this, does this Nick Hinton have some merit with this? Is he onto something? Or should I say, is random 4chan user that is not named the, the bearer of the most truth ever? Is this 4chan user, did he grow up to become Q? I have no idea, but probably. No, he's just every single, like, rogue Parks Service employee Twitter account. God, that Romney funny. staffer. Yeah. God. Embar- or he doesn't embarrassing exist. Embarrassing how many people fell for that stuff. Or he doesn't exist. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, none of those accounts were real. None no. of this is real. Like, what, but, like, what I mean is, like... Oh, Nick this Hinton w- made it up. Yeah. Like, Nick Hinton or some other dude that he talked to sure. made it up. Like, mm-hmm. like it, it's not even a fake account. Like, a quote-unquote fake account. It's, like, not existent. Now, 2012, as we all know has a lot of connection to Apocalypse. The whole Mayan calendar ending thing. We even had an end of the world social to celebrate and it, it was fun. And we woke up the next day and went about our business. And it was, it was a good time. Remove sandwiches from pockets. <laughs> <laughs> so there is definitely 
a connection in the greater consciousness of 2012 being an apocalypse, being an end of the world situation here. But let's go back to the very original hypothesis here, that the discovery that this Higgs boson and the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, made a black hole that could, in fact, swallow the world. Let's, let's look at that, because, I mean, that's more fun than the other part, right? To date, there is no evidence that CERN has created a black hole, though it's theoretically possible and may happen in the future. That would actually be kind of cool if they were, if and when they're able to do it. But let's talk a little bit more about black holes, because like a lot of these Mandela effect things that we understand incorrectly and refuse to change, we don't have a great understanding of what we are. Most of us, for myself included, for a long time, tend to see black holes as these monstrous voids that roam the universe just with the goal of gobbling up everything. Uh, Lauren is making the Pac-Man hand motion, and that's how that's how a lot of us see it. That's how it's portrayed to us, right? They are Galactus. these, yeah, no. they are these unknowable, terrifying things that could extinguish life in an instant, right? And that's not a great thing to think about. We don't, we don't love that. Unless you're a Calvinist, <laughs> <laughs> right? And a chosen one. The cho cho chosen one. So now, of course, a black hole doesn't have a goal because it isn't alive or conscious. It's just physics and chemistry and why all of this happens as it does. So, but I digress. I put that line in there for Jim. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so a black hole, I, okay, before I get into telling you what a black hole is, First of all, I'm not really going to tell you a ton because it's way too physics-y and I cannot. And there's so, a really good ologies episode about it. Yeah, there is there's a lot of other better sources that we can go to. So what you do need to know about a black hole is, yes, it does have a lot of gravity to it and it does suck things in. Black holes are super, super dense, especially compared to their mass. And that's one of the things that makes them different. Compared to their volume? Sure. Okay, they have a lot of, like, their mass is in a very dense space yes. compared to when they were not black holes. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yes. Mass versus size. Yeah, I, anyway, thank you. Anyway, they're, they're, their mass is large, but they're very, very dense, and so they're smaller compared to the suns or whatever they used to be. So, of course, they have a large mass. They have a lot of gravity that goes along with that mass. There. The larger the mass they have, the more gravity a black hole will have so it can pull things into it. But of course, there are limits to gravity. The vast majority of black holes that we're aware of are sort of fixed in, in space in some way, and they have things orbiting them. Um, they're not roving around the universe, just freewheeling it for the most part. So they have responsibility. <laughs> they have yes, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, for example, they, I believe, we believe there's a super enormous black hole at the center of the Milky Way. I like the fact that you called it a super enormous I rather forgot. than a super massive. That's what it was. I forgot. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> Are you sure you want that gain up so high? <laughs> Just looking at herself peeking the uh, monitors. <laughs> I was just saying, I'm like, hey, it's your job putting this in front of me, not mine. I can show from the other side. Anyway. <laughs> no, but sometimes you go really low for dramatic effect. I do. That's part of my charm, guys. Part of my charm. <laughs> She's got range. I got range. So anyway, 
black holes are fixed. They have gravity to them, but their gravity works just like the gravity of a sun or a planet or any other kind of gravity will work. Things, it has a range and things will orbit around it if it's big enough to do so. So for example, if our sun were to become a black hole, it won't, but should it? Black hole sun, won't you come? Nothing would change about the Earth's orbit. Absolutely nothing. All the planets in our solar system would stay exactly the same. Of course, like life on Earth would change, but nothing about the planets themselves would change at all because the sun's mass would be the same Mm -hmm. or maybe even tiny bit smaller. So maybe that would change a little bit, but it's not going to suddenly start devouring everything. So that's one of the biggest things that I think people don't understand about black holes is that they don't suddenly have this outsized gravity that allows them to draw in other things. Now, sometimes these things, black holes can collide with other things or they can merge and then they do have greater gravity as their mass grows. But still, there's a limit to that and space is enormous. So things just aren't that close Mm -hmm. together that it could devour the entire universe. So bringing that all back to a black hole on the planet here, that just wouldn't really happen. (laughs) It just couldn't. Let's go back even further to CERN or the the LHC being able to create black holes. Like I said, they may soon be able to create black holes, but these ones would be infinitesimally small, like incredibly tiny. They would be called primordial black holes. They would not be like the, the massive ones out in the rest of the universe. And they would typically degrade very, very quickly. They wouldn't last. There's a small chance that some of them would like immediately escape our atmosphere and like go off into space. But again, they would be tiny. So even if they made a tiny black hole, it would be able to pull in like a few atoms and that is all. And even then, some of those atoms might just be circling it. Adorable. So cute, right? (laughs) Tiny black holes, little baby black holes. Small. Someone somewhere will learn how to market them. (laughs) So the risk posed by any potential future black holes that CERN and the LHC could make is essentially nil. So even if in 2012 CERN actually made a black hole with the Higgs boson, which in itself is not connected to black holes, they just put these two things together here, it wouldn't be an issue. The Earth wouldn't have been instantly swallowed by it. There's no possible way that it could have happened here. So it's very funny. This I like this idea simply because it is so absurd. And when you listen to someone narrate the entirety of the Twitter thread, it reminds us that we should not tweet while inebriated. (laughs) And that is all. (laughs) Well done. That's a good rule of thumb (laughs) that I did not follow. (laughs) i've been twitter free for three months now i think oh how i feel i'm on reddit a lot (laughs) oh no oh no oh no you're just you're just it's a transfer addiction (laughs) yeah But I don't post. I just read trash subs. That being a something horrible, let's talk about some somethings nice. Nice! Jim, you haven't made a segment. What's something nice? I have spent some time recently building Lego sets with my kids. Nice. 
Kira. I got a one of those fancy Lego sets. I, I got a Lego set to build a copy of The Great Wave off Kanagawa. And so Kira has been helping me with that. And it's just been really nice to do that together. Yeah, it's nice family time, a nice relaxing thing to do. Well, that's my something nice. Excellent. Ashlyn? I haven't thought of anything. <laughs> there are many nice things, but I also don't want to steal the kittens. You can steal the kittens. I will expand upon the kittens. My something nice is that today I had no real plans other than doing this podcast, and I was able to play a really long game with Dave and Kyle without having planned it in advance. It was just, we decided to play it in the morning, and then we played a game, and it was great. Nice. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I got to stay upstairs and not have to play it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Perks of polyamory, everybody. <laughs> Laura? My something nice is about a week and a bit ago, getting a short notice visit from a friend that we hadn't seen in a long time. And that was, it was a very busy week and we did not technically have time, but it was nice to to do that. And it's one of those important things. And I'm still catching up on homework, but that's fine. (laughs) Some things are more important. They really are. And as my prof was saying in our last class, C's get degrees, everybody. C's get degrees. Yep. (laughs) Good prof. (laughs) Hopefully. My something nice is we adopted three cats. Woo! Because we never do anything by half measures. (laughs) (laughs) So within the last month, Spark and Ember and S'more have joined our household. Our household. Those are very cute names. Lovely. Ember and S'more were foster siblings in the same foster house. We went to go see S'more, who is a Siamese, mostly white, with some very light little dusting on him. Aww. And we saw Ember as well, and we couldn't leave her there without him. Hmm. And then we went to another rescue, and we saw Spark, who is also a Siamese slash calico, and she yelled at us until we took her home. (laughs) (laughs) You let yourself be bullied. (laughs) Well, we saw her picture online, and we're like, this cat is too cool for us. (laughs) <laughs> this cat is too cool for her. She's so beautiful and very judgy looking. She yeah. judges you with her little face every moment of the day. That's just Siamese existence, so though. Like, <laughs> yeah. So they are our little campfire kittens with their Aww. names. And we have an Instagram for them. Oosthaven Campfire. Aww. Yeah, so you can see their little antics. Amber plays fetch. Ashlyn's been teaching her. I didn't need to teach her really anything, but yeah, today we had a ball and we were just throwing it over and over again. She would run, get it, bring it back, drop it on the couch beside us and wait for us to throw it again. Wow. <laughs> just straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Some cats are dogs and some dogs are cats. Yeah. She is a puppy cat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so. more just like wants to run around all the time, but also snuggle up in our laps and mm-hmm. be all cozy. He has two modes. Porkor. And not parkour. <laughs> parkour is sad. Oh. So, looking forward to their antics. That's cute. Yay! Spark tried to bully me into going to work uh, on Friday mm-hmm. because I was in the basement instead. And she was like, I want to go sit upstairs in the craft loft and look out the window. And I can't do that unless you're there with me. So <laughs> let's go. 
Looking forward to learning more about our adorable kittens and <laughs> snuggling them forever. They're giant personalities. <laughs> we are so overmatched. <laughs> They're smarter than we are. It's great. Aw, that's well, adorable. I'm not going to ask anybody what we're talking about next month because we never know anymore. <laughs> no. So just know we'll bring something to you next month as well. And we'll just say good night. Good night. Thanks for a good show, everyone. Thank Bye. you. Good night. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. My name is Lauren Bailey, and with me tonight I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jem Newman. I'm sorry, we're going to have to start again. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is Kyle also doing his podcast tonight? Uh, That's the idea. I suspect, based on the non-replies that I have gotten, that he is in fact falling asleep. <laughs> I suspect there will be no podcasting tonight, and especially no quiz written by Kyle. <laughs> um, so I have up to the gain a little bit, but okay, I'll stay over here. Even yeah. though I turned this off, it's still blowing for some reason. Mm. There we go. It took a minute to. Um, but it's noisy. Can I ask you to speak up, please? Of course. <laughs> uh, okay. Go ahead. Play for the check cashing place down the street. And I know we weren't really recording, but I did notice a lot of this. Yep. So, just be aware. One of the loudest proponents of this theory is a person named... Oh, shit. Sorry. Let me start that again. Bad name. <laughs> it really is. This person's parents were not thinking. Okay, let me try that again. Osiris shit. Like nobody will ever come up with anything for that. <clears throat> noise, noise, noise. Oh my god, this is all wrapped up. I'm so sorry. The world has ended. I said we were going to move it and I forgot. Oh, Marissa, I'm making such horrible noises here. We could cut this out. No, this is all outtakes. <laughs> Would you like me to handle it, Jim? Oh my god, what the hell is that? We've got to have enough cord now. I don't know where... I don't know how Amazon got this, but it thinks I need the Gracula garlic crusher. Of course you do. Amazing. <laughs> also... Now all I can think of, Gracula! <laughs> Dig in no. the ditches <laughs> and burn in the witches. Give all the gifts cause I'm Santa Claus!